God, we have hearts that are prone to wander. We all know it. We've all seen the pain attached to it. We all have experienced what damage can be brought to our own lives, to our own selves, because, because our hearts are so prone to wander. Most of us, Father, bear the scars of a wandering heart. Most of us know the complexity introduced into our own lives because we willfully, rationally, chose to wander from a path and course of righteousness. It affected our marriages, it affected our families, it affected our jobs, it affected us. And now, oh God, some of us walk in here this morning feeling a sense of estrangement from the God we love. And so it is our prayer that you will, by grace, bind our hearts. Bind them close, O oh God, because we are a people who know the beauty, the beauty of living a holy life. Our Father, we uh, are grateful for the providences of this past week. Some of us have gotten wonderful news this past week. And yet others have gotten bad news. We, um, we know that in both, our joy is to be constant. We call it because we know in the end, you will, you will win, O oh God. That um, all things do indeed work together for good to them that love you and are the called according to your purpose. That we are a people who have experienced that. We know it at the base of our souls. So thank you for your promises. We live according to them. We live hanging on to them at times, O oh God, because life deals us cards that make no sense at times. And so it is your promise, the clear clarion voice of your promise that makes some sense out of what we're doing. It, um, it gives us hope, and it's hope that some of us need today. Father, um, we do thank you for all of the wonderful ways that you've provided for Grace Evan. We pray that you will continue to stir up in the hearts of your people the generosities that we have experienced thus far. But Father, we do indeed uh, realize that even as much as some of us may give, it's not very much. We want to be a people who give according to the way that we've been blessed so that you won't have to bless us according to the way we give. Because were you to do that, O oh God, were you to bless us according to the way we give, some of us would see your blessing dry up. If you were as stingy as we are, O oh God, we could hardly make it through the day. So, Heavenly Father, we want to give according to the way that we've been blessed, and it is our privilege to do so. We pray as always, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Mark chapter 11. Um, I'm not supposed to say, or I shouldn't say this in front of him, but I hope you could sense what an absolutely dear man that is. Um, when Jerry Brasher and I were in Kia, uh, Odessa, 
we met a lot of Ukrainians. That was the first trip. That was in 1997. We met a lot of Ukrainians. But I think Jerry will say the one that impressed us the most was that man. He was, he was something. And now he's gone on to be. It's just really interesting, the wonderful providence of God. Okay, Mark chapter 11. Let me read you two quick verses, and we'll jump in here. Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there's all kinds of reasons. It's very complex as to why we find forgiveness so difficult. There's just, nobody's going to unravel that thing for us completely. But, you know, just to give you an example, let, let's imagine that um, uh, somebody backs into you uh, in the parking lots at Kroger. Uh, Cecil's, I forgot where I was. Uh, but let's say somebody backs into you and... Um, uh, and you realize, I mean, there you are, this innocent victim, and uh, as you get out of your car, what is it that kind of overtakes you? There's a sense of superiority. And, and once we say we forgive, then we're, the playing field is now leveled back, and we kind of like that sense of, of uh, having superiority for the moment, you know? And that's just part of the reason, and, and again, that's just, it's very multifaceted, but that's part of the reason why we find forgiveness so difficult. What I want to do this morning is that I want to reason with you. You know, the Bible says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, and I'll make your sins that were scarlet as white as snow, etc. Well, that's what I want to do this morning. Last week, what I sought to do is lay a pretty hefty, and I thought it, I, I hope it was hefty, a pretty hefty a biblical foundation on which we can build now. Uh, that, that was last week. And what I want to do this morning is that I want to reason with you. I want to give you practical reasons. Uh, maybe, maybe practical is not the right word. Maybe rational is the right word. But I want to give you, I want to reason with you as we, as we, as I plead with all of us that we might be quick, quick to perform this great miracle of forgiveness among us. So, I want to give you four rational arguments and hopes that God will make us known for our forgiveness. Number one, the only thing harder than forgiveness is its alternative. The only thing harder than forgiveness is its alternative, ladies and gentlemen. I found a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, who is not known for his orthodox Christian, Christian views, but Mahatma Gandhi said this, and I quote, if everyone followed the eye-for-an-eye principle of justice, eventually the whole world would go blind. <laughs> and it's the truth. If we don't stop this somehow, ladies and gentlemen, we'll poke each other's eyes out. You know, th there's one major flaw in the, in the law of revenge. The flaw is... It never settles the score. You want an example? How about Bosnia? 
or uh, Serbia or Kosovo or Rwanda. You know, the, the Turks got revenge in 1389, and then the, the Croats got revenge in the 1940s, and then most recently the Serbs said, now it's our turn. But surely they realized that the, the descendants of the mutilated and raped and murdered are one day going to rise up and inflict their own revenge. I want to read you a quote from a book by Lewis Smedes. He says this, and I quote, Vengeance is a passion to get even. It's a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave you. The problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded. And the escalator never stops. It never lets anyone off. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have been very clear here in this series. I, I'm not saying to you that we ought to forgive because forgiveness is fair. I've never said that. I admit to you that forgiveness is unfair. But ladies and gentlemen, it is only forgiveness that will interrupt this juggernaut of retribution. One of the recurring themes of history, according to Lance Morrow, is that, and I quote, when forgiveness reigns, a Newtonian law comes into play for every atrocity there must be an equal and opposite atrocity. Do you like that? Is that an alternative that you can live with? Just an escalating scale of atrocity as we try to level the playing field and, and, and give as much pain as was inflicted on us? You know, ladies and gentlemen, I readily admit that forgiveness is not fair. Hinduism. Hinduism, with its doctrine of karma, provides a far more satisfying sense of, for, of fairness, if that's what you've got to have. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, Hindu scholars have calculated with mathematical precision how long it will take to ultimately uh, effect justice uh, to every man. Uh, they have suggested that for punishment to balance out all my wrongs in this life and future lives, it will only take 6.8 million incarnations. Well, ladies and gentlemen, some of you are behind. You need to get going with this incarnating business. Because if that's what you've got to have, it's going to take you 6.8 million incarnations. Did you read the, the story about the Texas man who lived with his wife 40 years? Early on in the marriage, they had an argument. An argument over the price she paid for sugar. And the argument erupted such that one day he get, goes to his garage and gets a lumber saw and saws their, half, their house exactly in half. He boards up the exposed parts of the house and then drags half of the house 
over to another part of the acre on which they live and under this little clump of pine trees. And there they lived for 40 years, never speaking to each other, in their half of a house. Ladies and gentlemen, not to forgive is to lock me in the past. It, it, it eliminates any potential for change. And, and I give my future into the control of someone else, the person who offended me. And I doom myself to suffer the consequences of that wrong, just like this Texas friend of ours. I once read a, a uh, Jewish rabbi who was immigrating to this country. He said this, I must forgive Adolf Hitler before I come to America because I do not want to bring Adolf Hitler with me to my new land. Some of you brought your Adolf Hitlers with you here this morning. And you are condemned to be locked under their control for as long as you refuse to forgive. The only antidote to the irreversibility of history, ladies and gentlemen, is this faculty, this miracle of forgiveness. Because the only thing harder than forgiveness is the alternative. My second practical, rational reason to forgive is that forgiveness, forgiveness allows for the possibility of the transformation of the one offending. Remember in 1984, Pope John Paul II walked into the bowels of Rome's Rabibia prison and met with the man who had tried to assassinate him, Ali or Mohammed or Mohammed Ali Anka, and communicated forgiveness to him. Now, what happened to Mr. Anka, I don't know. But it's forgiveness that allows for the possibility of the transformation of the one offending. I think of a story which I think best illustrates the point. In fact, I bet you you've seen this. It. Um, it's the story that was turned into a musical by a Victor Hugo novel. You know it well, Les Miserables. Do you, and do you remember the story? I didn't, I didn't read the book, but I did see the musical. Remember the story? It's a story about Jean Valjean, who was a French criminal who was put into jail for 19 years because he stole bread. And while in prison, he became a hardened convict. Nobody could beat him in a fistfight. His, his heart turned into granite because he wouldn't bend his stubborn will to any man. And um, after the 19 years, he earns his release and he's set free. And, but in those days, convicts had to carry certain papers on their person that identified that they were convicted felons. And consequently, no one would rent him a room to live in. And so for the first four days that he's out of prison, he wanders from village to village trying to find some place that would, uh, would rent him a room so that he can get out of the weather. Nobody would, until he met this kindly old bishop who extended mercy to him and gave him a place to live or a place to sleep. And on the first night that he slept with the bishop or the slept in the bishop's home, he waited for the bishop and his sister to go to sleep. And then he gets out of his uncomfortable bed and heads towards the family cupboard, cupboard and steals the silver 
Remember that? Then the next morning, a knock comes on the door, and there stands three French policemen who have caught him as he has tried to run with his stolen silver. And he stands on the front porch in, in handcuffs, these three policemen ready to throw this scoundrel into prison forever. And do you remember the bishop's reply and what the bishop said to Valjean as he stands there? Something like this. He says, so there you are. Oh, I'm so glad I, I saw you again because you forgot to take the candlesticks. Did you not remember that I gave you the candlesticks too? There were 200 francs. Uh, here, take those. And of course, Valjean is standing there with his mouth open and his eyes wide, and, and, and the bishop communicates, assures the police that, that he didn't steal them, that the silver was indeed a gift. And so they leave, and there stands the bishop and Valjean. And Valjean speechless, not knowing what to say. And, and the bishop looks at Valjean, and he says, Do not forget, do not ever forget that you have promised me to use the money to become an honest man. It was that, that, that one act, that one act that defied every human instinct of revenge that changed Valjean's life forever. This, this one naked encounter with forgiveness melts his heart and changes him forever. He keeps the candlesticks as a, as a memento of the forgiveness and then dedicates the rest of his life to helping people in need. Now, you may recall that there's another story, a subplot in Les Miserables and the, the, the novel and the, the musical. It's, a, it's about a detective whose name is Javert. And Javert is one who knows only one law, and that is the law of justice. And Javert stalks Jean Valjean for a couple of decades. And then on this, this marvelous twist of events, Valjean saves Javert's life. The, the hunted now aids the hunter. And when this happens, Javert senses that his black and white approach to life is crumbling underneath him. He is unable to cope with the kind of grace that goes against every human instinct. And, and he finds within himself no corresponding forgiveness. And you remember what Javert does? He goes to the bridge over the river Seine and he jumps in and kills himself. You know, back when I, my wife and I headed down to the Orpheum to see Les Miserables, uh, you know, I don't get all of those things. I, you know, I get just the high points. I, you know, I can hear them perfectly. But um, it was my daughter Megan's. It was absolutely her favorite musical, her favorite. Uh, but anyway, at the time that Susan and I went to the Orpheum, about that time, my wife, uh, my daughter Megan, gave me a book that she said I needed to read. And I have kind of a goal in my life to read one classic a year. And so um, the, the one I was reading then was a Alexander Dumas novel. 
You know who Alexander Dumas is, don't you? Alexander Dumas is the author of The Three Musketeers. Well, he wrote another novel, and that was entitled The Count of Monte Cristo. You know that story? This, uh, the hero, or the, the main character of the book, um, is imprisoned wrongfully, and while in prison, he meets a man, an old man, who tells him of a buried treasure. That old man dies, and the, the main character of the book escapes the prison by hiding in the body sack that was supposed to contain the dead man that just died. And so the officials of the prison come and throw the body sack that contains not the dead man, but the live man into the ocean. This man escapes, gets a boat, goes to the island, finds the, um, the, the, the buried hidden treasure that is indeed there, becomes fabulously wealthy, and the rest of the book is it unfolds this this retribution in exquisite detail as to how he takes revenge on the four men that threw him into jail. And I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that I loved reading it. It appealed to a sense in me of, yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it awakes a sense of justice inside you. And yet when I saw Les Miserables, it awakened a sense of grace and mercy and forgiveness. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's forgiveness that gives us the possibility, the possibility of the transformation of the offending party. Ladies and gentlemen, forgiveness is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian church and the Christian home running smoothly. If it doesn't exist in your home, you've got big trouble. One of my uh, mentors is a guy by the name of Fred Smith. No, not the one that flies airplanes. Fred Smith is a Dallas businessman who writes in all the magazines, uh, Christianity Today, Leadership Magazine, um, you know, everybody, every, anybody that's anybody is a friend of Fred Smith's. So that makes me a nobody because I just know him. I, I read him, his stuff. I don't know him. But um, Fred Smith made a fortune, uh, and I forget how he made it, but he's retired now and he's a business consultant. And so he goes from company to company and spends a week with them and tries to point out things that they could do better and improve, et cetera. And so somebody asked him one day, he said, um, uh, Fred, tell me, uh, how do you go into a company for a week and figure out what the problems are? This is what he said. He says, when I go into a company, I look for the ego. And where you find the ego, you'll find the problems. Ladies and gentlemen, when I go into your home, I look for the lack of forgiveness. And when I find it, that's where you find the problems. Forgiveness provides the possibility of the transformation of the offending party. Third, People who fail to forgive 
become very ugly people. Bitter, sour, angry, unhappy, petty, critical, emotionless. Harold Kushner, a name of familiar to you? Harold Kushner is a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book entitled Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? But another place, I read him where he told a story about a young woman who came to him um, for his counsel. She was a single mother, uh, three. Her husband had left them, and it was a struggle every month to pay the bills. She had to turn to her children and say, I'm sorry, you, we can't go to the movie, we can't do that because we don't have uh, any money, while at the same time, her estranged husband had now moved to another state, married another woman, and was doing quite well. And so Harold Kushner was telling her about how she needed to forgive him. And she responded violently, how, how can you possibly tell me to forgive him? And this is what he said. I'm not asking you to forgive him because what he did was acceptable. It wasn't. It was mean and selfish. I'm asking you to forgive because he doesn't deserve the power to live in your head and turn you into a bitter, angry woman. I'd like to see him out of your life emotionally as completely as he is out of it physically. But you keep holding on to him. You're not hurting him by holding on to that resentment. You're hurting yourself. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I... I've got four points today, and really this is the one I'm the most uncomfortable with, number three. Because it's really self-serving. Because it says, I've got to forgive for my own good. But I'm trying to reason with you. In the course of preparation of this series, Commercial Appeal included this article. To forgive is simply healthier. The most recent Christianity Today the forgiveness factor came two weeks ago. All they can talk about is how healthy it is to forgive. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's not worth it. What you're holding on to, it's not worth it. You're not hurting him. You're not hurting her. You're the one that's being destroyed from the inside out. My fourth and final. I want you to turn with me, if you've got your Bible still in your laps, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 42, 45. This is in the midst of the story about Joseph. You remember the story, his brothers sold him into slavery, and then he goes down to Egypt, uh, Potiphar's wife gets all over him, and it's a big mess, and he gets thrown into jail, and finally gets out of jail, ascends to the right hand of Pharaoh, and becomes the deliverer of, uh, of Egypt uh, through the famine, and ultimately his own family has to come down and buy bread from him. Remember that story? I want you to read this. Here's my fourth reason. Stay with me. Verse 1, Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud 
and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. He wept so loudly that the whole community heard Joseph wailing. What's the matter? Is he sick? No, no, ladies and gentlemen. That's just the sounds of forgiveness. Now, now look with me. Look with me at verse 16. And here's my point. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come, so it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. His servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Uh, load your animals and park, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father, da 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 yada 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 Here's my point. Forgiveness has an unbelievable impact even on the pagans. When the pagans hear that we as the people of God display and exercise forgiveness one towards another, it makes a very significant impact on them. I read a story recently about a marriage that was broken beyond repair. It was um, one fight right after the other. And finally, in the midst of one of their fights, the man loses all control, and he says, I hate you! I won't take it anymore! I've had enough! I won't go on! I won't let it happen! No, no, no! So as often is the case, they lick their wounds, stay married for a while at least. This couple did, even after something like that. Seven months later, the husband, in the middle of the night, hears some sounds that are coming from the bedroom of his two-year-old. He gets out of bed, walks down the hall, stands outside his two-year-old's bedroom, and he said, what I heard made my heart stop. Because coming from the soft little voice of my two-year-old was the exact words, even with the precise inflection of the voice that he had heard coming out of his daddy's mouth seven months earlier. And there the little two-year-old was saying, I hate you. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Ladies and gentlemen, when the pagans hear that we forgive, it has a great impact on them. But when our children hear 
that we won't forgive. It impacts them too. And what we do to our children is bequeathed to them. An angry, sour, hardened heart. And the sins of the fathers and the mothers get visited on them to our children. Ladies and gentlemen, unforgiveness is a toxin. And its only antidote is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a healthy, wholesome, virtuous, liberating act. It, it unleashes joy. It brings peace. It washes the slate clean. It's a blessing that leads to further blessing. Forgiveness is that which sets the highest virtues of love in motion, ladies and gentlemen. Forgiveness Forgiveness is Christianity's finest hour. Forgiveness is Christianity at its best. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Our Father, why would we dream? Why would we ever dream of not forgiving when we see how high are the stakes? What little, what little good could possibly come of our refusal to forgive? Actually, O oh God, there is no good. And I pray, O oh God, that you will cause your people to see how beautiful is this grace and that they might find themselves with hearts so full, so determined that they will end this day the grudge, the resentment that they brought into this building this morning. Might our church, might our families, might our community, might we be known as the group of Christians who are slow to anger but are oh so quick to forgive. Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met the Savior, I pray that they might see him in all of his forgiving beauty today and discover that he first has forgiven us, making it possible for us to now forgive others. We ask it, of course, all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.